Welcome to another episode of King of the Ride podcast. I'm your host, I'm Ted King, and we have a stellar show in store for you today. Our guest, Keegan Randall, Olympian, five-time Olympian, Olympic gold medalist in her final Olympics Olympian, no less. Keegan is a wife, a mother, a cancer survivor, a cancer survivor thriver, I will add. Keegan is a rock star. She's a living legend by my account, having basically laid the foundation for the U.S. Women's Nordic Ski Team that is now the powerhouse program that it is today. Keegan was kind enough to make some time earlier this spring during our time at the Dartmouth Tuck School of Business Next Step program. You may remember that program from our conversation earlier on this season with Dan from NAM, Dan Craven. This program, you may remember, helps point us as athletes and military personnel, possible direction of business in the next step of our lives, with a sweeping and extensive level of exposure in the field. Our conversation is going to talk a little bit about the Next Step program, which I think you'll find interesting. Our conversation will largely cover the highlights of such an illustrious career as Keegan has had. There are, of course, lowlights. The comebacks from injury. We're also going to talk about what it's like to be a mother, to become a mother amid an athletic career. This conversation helps paint the picture of the total badassery that is Keegan. Now, I need to interject a semi-mandatory website visit. Hit pause. Well, actually, don't hit pause until you've heard what I'm about to say right now. There's a good chance, if you're listening, you're familiar with Cosmo Catalanato's work, How the Race Was Won. If not, Cosmo dissects professional bike races in the most succinct, accurate, entertaining, and astute coverage that I have ever seen, bar none. As it turns out, he has extended his skills to the Nordic ski world. Folks, go watch the video that is linked to the show notes in just five short minutes. It explains how Keegan and Jesse won their Olympic gold. Even to a noob like me, you're going to be incredibly happy you watched this. It's going to help paint the picture for our show today. Hit pause. Go do that. Okay, welcome back. In any event, Keegan is awesome. It was great to get to know her in those few short weeks in Hanover, New Hampshire, and it is an honor to now call her a friend. Shifting gears, here we are on the verge of the Tour de France. May as well make a prediction or two. It's, of course, a tough one with Froome Dog obviously not there. Garrett Thomas, reigning champ, not in the form that he was in 2018. So we're already lucky enough to have some dramatic pre-race tumult with Bernal and Thomas fighting for leadership honors at Ineos. No clear favorite anywhere in the peloton. I think we're therefore going to see someone end up on the top step of the podium who's never been on a Grand Tour podium before. I will be giving the nod to Bernal for the win. Quintana? Yes, Quintana is my pick for the second step. Jakob Fuglsang is going to be up there in third. I think we're going to see the normal expected heads of state taking some wild swings, given the potential changing of the guard that we're going to see here on the Grand Tour stage. So, Stevie Kreiswick, eyes on you. I'm giving the nod to Barnet to be representing the French over Pino. He'll be there alongside Al Philippe, and I think uh, we're going to see Al Philippe representing the Polka Dots once again in 2019. I think TJ Van Garderen is in a new, relaxed environment as opposed to uh, Z Belgi Swiss at BMC. 
I'm impressed with his form so far in 2019. I think we're going to see him representing EF up there in the top 10. It is going to be a grand grandy. Definitely looking forward to July. Speaking of great racing and awesome coverage, I need to tip my hat to my friend Ansel Dickey and what he's done these past six months with my Grow Ducanza series. Owner-operator of Vermont Social, Ansel covers my take on this very atypical approach to Kansas that I've had this year. Dirty Kansas, of course, has been the marquee event in an incredibly busy spring so far for me. Head over to growed2kansa.com to check out the whole series, and in particular, the freshly minted episode 5. Fear not, my friends, the growed will continue. In less than one month, we're going to be going overseas for the next big event that's on the calendar. The summer is packed. So many great events coming up. The Rift in Iceland, Rooted Vermont, of course, here on our home roads with Laura. Leadville, Steamboat Gravel is coming down the pike. Vermont Overland, we are redoing our floors. We are installing a mudroom. Wow. Life catches up with you quick. Folks, no more awaiting good things. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this conversation with Keegan Randall. So, I'm excited to have you on the show. Um, from a pure athletic standpoint, I think you're hands down our most accomplished athlete, accomplished person to be on the show. We've had a lot of entrepreneurs. We've had some chefs, some folks in the culinary world, obviously some professional cyclists. But when I saw your name on the Next Step program, I was kind of starting to scramble because I'm like, okay, you're somebody that I really want to do a podcast with, sit down and talk with. But I hope the, the bike is in your life because the bike is the thread that ties everybody on the king of the ride together. So I'm very glad to see you ride a bike. Um, we've already talked about fat biking a little bit this week, which is very cool. Anyway, starting very early on, skiing wasn't your first love, wasn't your first pursuit. Um, talk to me about your roots, your family, where you grew up, how you got into Nordic skiing. That's a great question and I think a huge part of my story that I love to talk about. I was fortunate to grow up in a very active family um, I had an aunt and uncle that went to the Olympics in cross-country skiing, um, and my mom did it at a pretty high level in college. So the Nordic influence was always there, but my dad was big into alpine skiing. Um, even though growing up in Wisconsin, you know, he kind of fell in love on a small hill and moved out west. And so he got me on alpine skis the day after my first birthday. And from my earliest memories, I just, I was out trying all sorts of different sports. I mean, at recess in elementary school, I was always playing football with the boys. I was climbing trees. Um, and I guess I loved trying everything. I, I watched my first Olympics at five years old and decided I wanted to try and be an Olympian. And so every sport then I did thereafter was like, oh, I'm going to be an Olympic this. I'm going to be an Olympic <laughs> that. And uh, yeah. it was just, it wasn't a matter of if, it was just a matter of what. And so I just grew up doing a lot of different things and got kind of serious about Alpine skiing, kind of sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Started to race full time in the winter. Um, narrowly missed like the junior national team two years in a row, and that, in retrospect, was probably a great experience to go through. Devastating at the time, but also kind of just helped help me hone in, I think, on where my real talents lied. But also kind of gave me that that factor of resilience. Then I got big into running. Thought I wanted to run collegiately, Division One, and started my freshman year of high school. My running coach moved out of town. 
and I needed a new training group. And I got introduced to this new ski program that had just started. And I kind of thought, yeah, I can do that as a way to stay in shape for running. And literally within a couple of weeks, I realized I loved the training, how multidisciplinary it was. And I loved the fact that no American woman had ever won an Olympic medal. I kind of started uh. to look back and go, well, running, we've got, we've had great success. Alpine skiing, we've had great success. Um, you know, why couldn't we make this happen? And wouldn't it be cool to be the first? So initially focused on just trying to make the 2002 Olympics, which was a year after I graduated from high school and thought, okay, well, maybe I'll try to make the Olympics and then I'll go to college and do NCAA somewhere. But then in that one year of trying to make the Olympics, I realized I was really intrigued by making it to that top level, going after that Olympic medal. And so I just said, you know what, I'm going to commit to the long term. Dang. Um, perfect segue, because according to my very notes of the grindstone research here, you have some pretty exemplary performances. We have 2002 American female best at the Junior World Championships. Feel free to not correct me if any of these <laughs> stats I've, I've picked up are wrong. 2009 best American female result at in any ooh I have it in any Olympics, but that was probably not 2009. What year was that? Six in a sprint event. 2006. Yep. Okay. Ninth place in 2006. That, that's it. 2009 <laughs> first American female medal with a silver at the World Championships. 2011, first American woman to win a World Cup title. 2013, first American gold in the team sprint with certain Jesse Diggins, <laughs> who was a kid at this point, I imagine. Totally. Um, and then a three-year run where you where you took the World Cup sprint title home, which is... So, I mean, I guess my question is, your, your, your ascent through the sport, like America did not have a, a female representation really at the at the world stage um and so i mean where do you attribute your success in 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 you know wanting to plant american skiers on the map well I'll rewind back to that first olympics in 2002 yeah and watched my fellow north american becky scott originally get bronze in the skiathlon which was later upgraded to gold because of um, ah. some metal reallocation. Uh -huh. So seeing a fellow North American who I'd started a race kind of shoulder to shoulder with was definitely inspiring for me and just kind of made me feel, well, if she can do it, then that creates some possibility. I also often overlooked as our men's team actually performed really well at those Olympics. They were fifth mm. in the relay. Um, Chris Freeman had some great results, Carl Swenson. So kind of watching them also just, again, gave me that feeling of, okay, if they can do it, I can do it. And so I literally sat down with my coaches after those games and said, okay, if I'm going to win an Olympic medal, what steps do I have to clear to get there? And we built out this roadmap, and by the time we were done, it was going to be 10 years long, wow. which was daunting at 19 years old, but yeah. also gave me targets. And that was, okay, do well at World Juniors, do well at U23s, get World Cup experience, and work your way up. And so as I took off on this 10-year journey, I had these great intermediate goals to focus on. And looking back now, I see all those check marks, all those steps. And at the time, I was kind of the first woman to do it. Yeah. We'd you know, had some success on the men's side. What I think I'm most proud of now, though, is that every single benchmark that I set has now been exceeded by the girls that come after me. Hmm. So I love the fact that I was able to break some barriers that built the confidence of us as a country. Yep. Um, and now these girls are taking it even farther than I ever could. Yeah. And uh, that's the best thing I could have asked for. No kidding. That is incredible. Um, and then so jumping to the present, I imagine amid all your travel now, you're seeing a lot of young girls, uh, you know, getting in, and young people in general getting into the sport uh, of Nordic skiing here in America. 
from a from a much earlier age, being able to set that precedent and be like, hey, you know, like skiing's cool. Look, uh, I have this really neat gold medal around my neck. Um, who were your role models early on? Was it your aunt? Was it um, some foreigners? Was it uh, role models from other sports? I think because I had a fascination with sports, with the Olympics in particular, I definitely just looked for role models everywhere I was. And I was fortunate to have some great role models right in front of me and right in my life. I mean, my aunt was an incredible role model. She had run a mile under five minutes. And so it was my (laughs) goal to run a mile faster than her at some point. I never quite got there. I ran five flat point two. Um, but aspiring to that, to kind of follow in her footsteps was incredible because I got to wear her Olympic gear around and, uh, chase her on the ski trails. Um, so that was incredible. And then in Alaska, it's a unique situation where we don't have professional sports. So the heroes in town are the winter Olympians. They're in the paper, they're on the news. Um, but you see them in your community. So I looked up to this, uh, woman, Nina Kempel who at the time was the most successful female cross-country skier of the modern era. Um, She grew up in Alaska. And when I first got serious about the sport, she actually invited me to come train with her. And we were teammates on the 2002 Olympic team. Hmm. So I was fortunate to have her, and again, just kind of sync that long-term goal to someone right here that's doing it and I can relate to. But I really looked for role models in all sorts of sports. I mean, my walls in high school were peppered with Wheaties boxes from the Olympics from all sports. I had newspaper articles on my ceiling, so it was the last thing I saw when I went to bed at night. Um, even still today, I go to the Olympics or I'm, I'm around the athletes here at Next Step and, and the military veterans, and I, and I see role models everywhere. So I, I love the inspirational value of people who have accomplished big things but are, are really embracing that opportunity to exude positive qualities and be inspirational. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so jumping to 2018 Pyeongchang Olympics and the gold medal winning race. As a, as a total newbie to, to Nordic skiing, I'm really interested in the team dynamics. Um, we've talked about it a little bit before, before today. So talk about the process of picking the team for that particular race. I mean, there might be a misunderstanding, like I had, that you'd been training with Jesse for this particular race for years and to a degree certainly had in that 2013, <laughs> but that's not the case. So yeah, talk to me about the process of picking that team for the, for the, for the Olympics. Well, it, um, after the Olympics, going into the Olympics in 2006, we had no women's program. We had no development team. They had taken the limited funding they had and, and put it directly into a few men. And that only fired me up more to go out and prove that yeah. the women could be successful and that we were kind of worthy of the investment of the development of long term. So after 2006, I got my top 10 at the Olympics. I think then everyone realized that the previous strategy was not going to be helpful. And, and we kind of rerouted, built a development team. But then for those first few years, um, I was on the World Cup on my own that we had no women's team and therefore I just sit out relays and I've been a team person since the beginning and so I just missed having the teammates around missed having that opportunity to compete in relays and so I just was constantly kind of driving to encourage the athletes in our geographically immense country which is a challenge but like let's come together let's all give a little bit to push each other and that's the way we're going to get better. And so around just after 2010 Olympics, that started to kind of actually happen. We started to get some young talents, Jesse Diggins, Sadie Bjornsson, Liz Steven, um, Ida Sargent, uh, 
And so we started to build this women's group. And that was really fun for me because I, my career was kind of taking off. I was getting big results. But I didn't have to focus on me. I could focus on we. Yeah. And so that just made the process really fun. It was helping me excel. But then I was also really help, enjoying trying to help bring the other girls up. So as the years go by, um, we're actually, we're, we're finding, we're gelling as a team pretty well. But it was our coach, Matt Whitcomb, who really encouraged us to think a little bit down the line to when we were all going to be at a higher level and we were all going to be challenging for those limited relay spots. You know, how could we really not just tolerate each other, but essentially like really respect each other and lift each other up and be ready for those situations where you're going to try everything you can and you may not get named to the team. You may have to sit on the sidelines and watch your team do something amazing. Mm -hmm. So because we started talking about that coming in, uh, when I got to those 2018 Olympics and my team was all at such a high level and I wasn't even sure if I was going to get a start, uh, I really, ha I really had to have that conversation with myself in my head of, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to make the best case I can. Cause I really want to be on that team. But if I don't make it, I know I help make my teammates better and I can be super excited about what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, and that, that really helped me manage some of the nerves coming in. Um, the couple days leading into that team sprint, we still didn't know who was going to be. We had several girls. We knew Jesse was skiing phenomenal. She was going to be one of the spots, but the other one was up. And it wasn't until about 36 hours before the race that they decided who it was going to be. And I was sitting in the athlete village in the room with, with Sadie Bjornsson. And it was kind of down to the two of us at that point. And Matt walked in and he was going to tell us who it was going to be. And um, for one person, it was going to be just incredible news and for the other person it was going to be devastating because we knew we had a shot at a medal yeah. so matt tells us who it's going to be they've decided to pick me um sadie immediately turns to me and said ah, you know i wanted to be on that team but i believe in you as much as i believe in me what can i do to help and that was the most amazing example of team spirit sportsmanship i think i've ever seen um, and she did. She jumped right in. She, you know, we did a workout all together in the course of yeah. the next day. She and the other girls were there that night cheering us on and just unbelievable. That's so team awesome. has always been huge for me um, to win that first Olympic medal in a team event, I think, is a, is a dream come true. Um, way better than any individual medal would have been. And the... I, I like to think I, I helped build it, but we also had some amazing leadership in Matt and then also the girls that just were willing to commit to something greater than their own individual goals. Sure. Oh, that's awesome. Great story. <laughs> um, so going through the day itself, talk to me about the logistics of how the day unfolds um, amid qualifying, amid how much rest you can have between races. I mean, it's not there could be the misunderstanding that this takes place over the course of a week, a qualifying, you know, a couple of days rest, the next qualifying round, and then, and then the finals. Um, what are the logistics for the day? And then better yet, I mean, I love, I love, you said you had some nerves going into the race. Um, fast forward to the start line of the, of the gold medal race and you're watching the race again is just, it's incredible to see your emotion on the start line and how, how G'd up and ready to go you are. So yeah, walk me through the day. Yeah, so we're competing in South Korea and to sync with uh, kind of the major markets in Europe and, and America, we're racing in the evening. Yep. So that means you had all day to hang around um, and get nervous. We went, 
on a team jog in the morning um, with a bunch of the girls. And then Jesse and I were kind of hanging out in our athlete apartment for a while. I think I was um, planning around, I was moving into a new house later in the spring. So I had cut out little replicas of all the <laughs> furniture and I was kind of moving it around and I was using that as a distraction. Uh -huh. Jesse and I also had realized that the last time she and I had teamed up on a team sprint had been five years earlier at the world championships when we won gold. So we said, well, what did we do that day that was successful? And we're just going to replicate that. Yeah. So we were watching Glee back then. So we pulled up our favorite Glee clips <laughs> and we're watching through those. Um, and the last one we watched before walking out the door was Don't Stop Believing. Yeah. And looking back now, that was maybe a little bit of a sign. We did our face paint. We put on our team relay socks. The whole day was cool because we, we just talked about executing our strategy. We never talked about the medals. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a key too. just focus on our kind of execution and what we were there to do. And so then we get out to the course, I don't know, like 3.30 in the afternoon. Um, normally we would have gone right into ski testing, mm -hmm. but the, the service staff had pulled out all the stops. They had tested every single skate ski in our entire team's fleet. So I have generally around 20 pairs of skis. You know, Sadie would have 20 pairs. Sophie would have 20 pairs. They tested all of them. So they probably tested 80 pairs of skis okay. and found the fastest pairs for us to race on that night. Yeah. And because they'd done that, I just got to come in and just go straight into my warm up. I didn't yeah. have to think about that extra piece. Then we were in the in the quarter or the there's a semifinal. Um, I think there were 12 teams. We knew we had to finish in the top two. Um, or the next six fastest times compared to the other heat. So our our strategy was just to kind of go out and ski front and go for those two spots. I feel like every lap of the semifinal was just building my confidence. My shape had been getting sharper and sharper as I came through the Olympics. Yeah. Um, but as I we went through that semifinal, I could re I realized like my gears were right where I needed them to be. So we ended up uh, winning, I think, our semifinal. And then it was about an hour, hour and a half until the final. Mm -hmm. So then you have to cool down from, you've just done three all out laps uh, with the, just the break in between while your partner's out on the course. Then you have to kind of wind down, try to rest a little bit and then wind back up. So we're underneath the stadium and we had great um, physical therapists with us. So we're kind of just joking around with them, getting a little massage, hanging out. Um, I had this country playlist um, that was just hitting the mark all the way through the Olympics. So New I'm just, country, old country. Uh, kind of new new country. Yeah, right. it was just a, a playlist I'd popped I picked up on Apple Music. Yeah, it's called Caffeine Country. Nice. I like uh, hot country myself. Okay. I get a lot of flack for liking new country, but I love it. So yeah, you got to just deal. I have to say, for the Olympics, like it just it just kind of helped me tap into that kind of American spirit. Yeah. It just had the right beat to it. Uh -huh. um, kept me kind of loose and excited. So I'm listening <laughs> to the tunes, and then it's it's time to go out in the snow. And I remember when I walked out from underneath the stadium with the, the lights were just blaring and it was just the most Olympic feeling race of, of my career. And after having been at five of them, you know, I was just kind of surprised that I was still just amazed with the Olympic feel of the race. Um, I, I started off the leadoff. So because we had won our semifinal, I got to start at the front of the diamond in the start pyramid. And uh, when the camera came by, I just yeah. gave out the biggest smile because I knew I was confident in the way I was feeling I just knew this was going to be my last Olympic race and I was just ready to just roll my eyes back in my head if I had to leave it all out there um, and just ready to enjoy it too. That is awesome. Um, you had recommended that I check out how the race was won by Cosmo Catalanato, which is very fitting because he went to Dartmouth and here we are on Dartmouth campus. And 
you know, the, the cycling world knows Cosmo from from how the race was won. Videos turns out he knows a thing or two about ski racing because that he he nailed it. Um, <laughs> and he points out often, you guys are both on really fast skis, so you can see, you know, you guys are are able to coast when other times are some other skiers are picking up, having to work quite a bit more. So that was super cool to me for me to see as a again total noob. Um, so. In the final race itself, you are three quarters of the way through. You have set up Jesse perfectly. You are you are finished with your job. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if your emotions are any different watching this race come down to the absolute wire than your typical American fan who's at home, obviously returning for the red, white, and blue, or a ski fan who knows exactly what's going on, and then you who are in the race watching your teammate throw to the line. I mean, it was one on a. What do you call that? We call it a bike throw, ski uh, throw. We call it a lunge. Okay, a lunge to the to the line. What are your emotions watching the final five hundred meters? Say, yeah. Well, I had gone pretty much all out on my lap, so as I tagged off to Jesse, it took me a moment to kind of compose myself, and so I really didn't see what was going on in the first half of the lap. So by uh-huh. the time I looked up. They were kind of descending down into the stadium. Jesse was in third, but you could tell she her skis were were rockets, and so you saw her go wide, and then wider, and then wider. And I, for a second, I thought, should I even watch this? Because she yeah. almost didn't get back in between the V board, and then she cut through the narrowest slot between Norway and Sweden. Mm-hmm. And so, and at that point, it was down to three teams. It's like, barring disaster, we're gonna get a medal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of see them go around the corner, and now I'm running over to the finish area. But, of course, there's a bunch of photographers, and there's people, and we can't just run right out into the middle. So I'm kind of like peeking around somebody, and I, I'm getting excited now because now we're not just in the hunt for a medal. You know, now we're racing for, for gold. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I realized that the Swedish girl, uh, Charlotte Kala, is standing right next to me, and we both are yelling. And yeah. then, like, I feel like I yell a little louder, and then she yells a little louder, and we're having our own yelling matches <laughs> if whoever can scream the loudest can will their teammate. Yeah. So we're both leaning over, and we're watching them come. And from our perspective, it's, like, neck and neck. You can't tell if there's a difference. And so I see them lunge at the line, and I look up at the scoreboard expecting to see photo finish. Yeah. And when I saw number one, United States, I just let out the most awkward, excited <laughs> yell because it just, it finally happened. You know, uh-huh. it was everything. And it wasn't just a medal. It was that statement. I mean, Jesse had, she's always impressed me as someone who can dig deeper than anyone I know. Relays always bring out a total, another level in her. So the fact that she was able to just ski with such experience and poise and kind of wait for that moment and then come out with that extra gear when it counted, uh, it was just incredible. And I ran out and I, she was on the ground and I tackled her and she still had enough breath to say, did we just win the Olympics? <laughs> and so we had that moment and it was funny because yeah. like five years ago at the world championship, we were reverse roles. Mm-hmm. I was the one that came in and she came over and tackled me. And so we just kind of got to have that moment again. But the coolest part was that our entire team was right there, like ready to tear the boards down. I mean, just screaming, yelling, and we just got to get up and go hug with them. And all this talk that we had done for years about the success of how if we pushed each other, we could we could make that relay medal happen. Yep. And then we could all enjoy the success together. 
Um, it was incredible. The hard part was the men's race was still yet to happen. Not and we had, a, we had our men's team had a good shot in that race. So everybody's so excited, they're hugging, and then all of a sudden the coaches and the WAC staff and everyone realizes they have to reset and go support the men's team. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just incredible, incredible moment. And I think even though I was there and in the race, I was probably on my toes just as much as everybody else. Yeah, that's so cool. Perfect. Um, perfect end to a career. I mean, no better spot, no better medal than that. Um, and naturally, over the course of a successful and lengthy career, you're going to have a couple setbacks. So, for example, going to the 2014 Olympics, I think you had a, a, a back injury, which might have been a little bit debilitating. And then, what, six weeks before 2018, you had a stress fracture in your foot, which, well, before I even finish the question, talking about that. Yeah, so going into that 2018 Olympic season, uh, November and December, I was sharpening up in the World Cup, just like right on schedule, feeling good. Um, had just gotten a World Cup podium in, in Switzerland a couple weeks before Christmas and uh, just started to get some pain in my foot and um, didn't think of it at first and then pushed it one more week and then it started to get pretty painful and uh, so went and got an MRI and, and they found that it was a, a stress reaction, which is really close to getting stressed. So I I tried to take a, a week away from skiing and see if it would come around and it didn't come around. So then we kind of took, went a step further and just said, okay, no, no skiing. Um, kind of through the Christmas break, which was supposed to be an important training period for me. And um, I was in, I was wearing a walking boot around. I was aqua jogging in the pool. I was only doing upper body skiing on the, on the spin bike in the gym. And um, after three weeks of that, I thought, okay, maybe, maybe I can start testing it out again. And I went and did the first race of the tour to ski and I was still having a lot of pain in my foot. And so at that point we said, you know what, you only have six weeks until the Olympics. Like, so I just had to back completely away from my racing plan. I had to leave the team and just go back to, luckily we had rented an apartment in Switzerland and I just was there with my, with my dad and, and my son Breck and mm -hmm. me and I was just going to the pool and I was fortunate the Swiss, the Swiss team had gave me access to their physical therapy and so I was freaking out. I mean, here yeah. everything had gone perfect until now I got to sit back and then meanwhile my teammates are killing it which was so great to see, but I just knew it was going to be that much harder to get Olympic spots and make that team. So I just really had to say, you know what? Okay. I I've, I've been in this situation before and I've just got to make the most of it. And, you know, maybe I'll find something, something good at this. Some weakness I'm working on now will become a strength. And I just really had to rely on that kind of mental strength and Boy, it, it was it was coming around. Um, I still had pain in my foot at the Olympics, but by that point we figured I wasn't going to do any more damage. And uh, my my fitness was sharpening literally every day, yeah. but it wasn't going to be in time. I mean, I just, I couldn't believe after that, having happened with my back six weeks before Sochi, how here I was in that same position again. Yeah. <laughs> Did, what, what sort of training are you able to do? Obviously you said in the pool, um, a lo whole lot of upper body stuff. Are you, how do you, how do you strengthen lower body, all pool stuff or Well, I mean, or? I was able to do the spin bike um, because that was uh, fairly low impact and it wasn't targeting like it was, it's the metatarsal that was uh, okay. being stressed. So I was able to kind of keep my engine 
sharp, I guess, so to speak, on the bike. Um, and actually, aqua jogging in the pool, as mundane as and boring <laughs> as it is, yeah. it's it can be an incredible fitness builder. Yeah. Um, the hard part was the pool I was at wasn't really set up for it, so I literally was just doing like these little mini laps through the deep end, dodging people going off the diving board. <laughs> um, at one point, I tried. I had like my Bose earbuds under a swim cap. Cap. I looked uh -huh. ridiculous, but I, I had to be in there for an hour and a half. Yeah. I had to keep my mind sane somehow. You were doing aqua jogging for an hour and a half. Yeah. In the, oh, in the deep end of the pool. It's a mental um, test. Yeah. And then thankfully, I mean, I was able to go out and double pole, uh -huh. um, which both techniques in skiing, even if you're skating, the upper body is incredibly important. Yep. Um, I have to say, though, it just it wasn't satisfying. I couldn't feel like I was getting in Olympic shape. Yeah. And at times I just I almost like, you know, felt weak because I was hitting my upper body so much that it was almost getting tired. Um but it allowed me to keep keep my aerobic capacity strong. It allowed me to keep enough specific so that when I was able, about three weeks out from the Olympics, actually start doing more ski-specific stuff, yep. that sharpened really quick because the base essentials were still there. And then did you, in that six-week period, have to qualify or you knew that you already had a spot? How hard did you know you were going to the Olympics and then had to qualify within the team? Thankfully, my results kind of pre-Christmas yeah. um, had put me in a position to qualify because a lot of the Olympic team selection is based off of your world ranking. Mm -hmm. And I had a solid world, world ranking before I just stepped back from racing. Mm -hmm. So I knew I was going to the Olympics, but I literally didn't know if I would have a single start because wow. we had, I think we had a, 10 or 11 women that were named to the team. Mm -hmm. And you only get four start, starts in each individual race, four starts in the, the team relay, and then two people are on the team sprint. And that the team sprint was the race that I had targeted literally since the Sochi Olympics. Like I want to be on that team sprint. It's one of my favorite events. It's one of my strengths. Like I want to be on that team. And so it was nerve wracking coming to the Olympics, like feeling like that was kind of an outside shot at that. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. Well, perfect. Um, <laughs> so yeah. How do you, how do you, maybe you answered it to a large degree. How do you compartmentalize injury? Um, meaning you reacted to it by by putting your head down and saying, "Okay, I'm going to be um, I'm going to be objective about it, and these are the things, these are the steps that I need to take." Do does subjectivity, does emotion come into it much, or are you able to just purely nose down to the grindstone and say, "I have a goal. It is six weeks from today, and I'm going to get through it." Like how how emotional do you become? I would say it's definitely a mixture of both. Um, you can't help but have emotion come in. Um, and it's a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. Some moments you're like, you can see it so objectively and you're like, I've got this. I can do X, Y, Z. It's not exactly what I plan to do, but it's still going to get me there. Mm -hmm. And you, that motivation from your goal that you can picture in your mind that you're visualizing is so strong that you just convince yourself you're going to get there. But other times when you're you're doing the alternative training and you're, feel, you're not feeling fit, you're not feeling confident, you're watching your teammates ski incredibly fast you definitely doubt yourself and uh, you get mad. You're like, this isn't fair. I, never, you know, I was doing everything right and how could we off? And um, for me, I guess the, the value of being so deep into my career is that I'd been through this process a few times and every time I had been able to kind of reframe my mindset to realize when I was starting to focus too much on things I couldn't control and come back and focus on the things I could and literally just kind of rebuild one step at a time and how as hard as it was doing those things helped me come back from a lot of my injuries stronger than ever. Hmm. And so I just, when I would have those low moments leading into Pyeongchang, I just kept telling myself, hey, you've done this before and it's led to something even greater than you thought you could do. Mm -hmm. So 
why why wouldn't that happen now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 then using a, a good pump up music, you know, occasionally resorting to looking at cute kitten photos on Pinterest, or you know, having my <laughs> son around was was yeah. perfect because it gave me the perspective of, you know, I want this Olympic goal really badly. I'm going to give everything I have, but regardless of whether I get that result, my little boy is going to be happy to see me, and I yeah. want to be able to tell him that story, and. It just kind of helps rel relieve the pressure. You go out and you do your work and then you come back and you just get to enjoy life. And that sometimes frees you to perform at your best. Sure. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so Breck has come up twice now. Uh, <laughs> amid that 2014 to 2018 Olympic cycle, you and your husband have a child. April 2016, I believe. Young Breck is born. Uh, I mean, yeah, talk to me about how your, I guess your lead up to pregnancy and, and then coming out of uh, that, knowing that you have an Olympic year coming up two years from then. Yeah, well, it, after Sochi, um, after so much buildup of coming into those games, like so confident that I could win a medal, um, it definitely was a lot to think through after that of kind of like, okay, I just had kind of my last shot in an individual medal because the way techniques flip-flop for us, I knew the individual sprint in Pyeongchang was going to be classic, which is not typically one of my stronger events. So there was the team sprint, which is a team event. But again, I just, I don't have as much control of that myself. So I had to say, I've had a really great successful career. Do I have it in me to go four more years when I won't have a shot at my favorite event, but there's this team event. Also, my husband had been very patient. He was really excited to be become a dad. And so we knew, I knew I couldn't wait a whole nother Olympic cycle before starting the family. So I kind of thought, well, maybe it's not an either or, maybe there's a way to do both. And so we did our best to strategically time it in that kind of funky year when right after the Olympics, you have a world championships and then you have this year that's kind of no championship and then a world championships and then the Olympics. So we thought, well, if I'm gonna have to take a season off, that 2016 year would be kind of ideal. And thankfully, our, our timing did work out well. Um, and I was excited I was and curious to see what um, what I could do while I was pregnant and then what it would be like coming back. And so I, I was kind of voraciously looking for any example, any article, anything I could find. And there have been plenty of successful women that have done this, but it's really hard to find their stories. Mm -hmm. So I was able to pull a little bit of some runners um, and some cyclists, actually, and, and I was asking a lot of questions and thankfully my, my doctor in Alaska said, you know what, women have been doing this for thousands of years. You know, your body will tell you what you're capable of. Just, you know, if the goal, number one goal is a healthy baby and, and your health, then just use that as your guide and, and do it, you know, do what feels right. Mm -hmm. So my coach had, um, you know, had seen his wife go through uh, five, not five, three pregnancies and she'd continue to run. So we kind of just built this training plan to focus on the goal of maintenance as opposed to top performance. I continued to train twice a day through seven and a half months of my pregnancy. I continued to do intervals. I continued to do strength twice a week. And I was amazed at how much I could do and how good I felt. And I just kind of followed that. There were certain, there were a couple days where I went out there and I didn't feel it. And so I turned around and went home. But through the course, I was able to do a lot. So I think I maintained a lot of fitness through my pregnancy. Mm -hmm. That was kind of my maternity leave because once Breck was born, it was like, okay, now it's back to work. Now yeah. I want to rebuild myself. I tried to stay patient for the first six weeks to really let my body recover. 
then kind of gradually started adding in one thing at a time. And I would say about every three months, I felt like a good change. Um, my aerobic system was super strong when I came back. The tension in my muscles took some time to come around. So I started the race season at about seven months, um, and it it was hard. Like, to go back to that redlining effort, mm-hmm. um, it, it took a lot of mental patience and just kind of reminding myself that these were essentially workouts that were going to be building me back. And then finally at about nine months, 10 months, it started to click. And that's when I started to get the tension back in my joints. So that then combined with the aerobic power came in and and coming into the world championships, uh, my form was coming around and I ended up winning a bronze medal um, at the world championships. And that gave me a lot of confidence. And so by the end of that, that first year, I felt as strong as ever. That's awesome. You do a great job of finishing each of these snippets with like very uplifting things so that all I can say is that's awesome. That's incredible. <laughs> like it's, it's freaking super cool. Um, so professional athletes are, are often dealing with injury. You're sort of on the cusp all the time. You, you, you throttle your body so hard that, you know, you're, you know, on this precipice all the time. Um, but then, you know, that sort of contrasts similarly to cyclists or athletes rather, always trying to toughen things out and saying, no, not me. I can, I can get through this. Uh, that's not tendonitis. I'm going to forget about it. And, you know, hopefully it turns out that it's not actually an injury. So, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind. Um, you've been very open about your cancer treatment. And so I'm wondering, I'm wondering how you discovered cancer. Um, and if there was ever that moment where you're like, nope, not me out of sight, out of mind, I'm not going to do this. Or, or did you just immediately tackle it head on? So it was about three months after the gold medal had happened. Uh, I had finished the season, had a big retirement party, uh, moved yeah. a couple thousand miles uh, to, Brit- to British Columbia um, to, to set up and support my husband's career for a while. So we were in our new spot. It was Mother's Day. It was an amazing day, beautiful. Uh, Jeff and Breck and I spent the day together. We went for a hike. Um, just like had such a great feeling at that day was getting ready for bed at the end of the night, and I just happened to brush past a hard spot. Um, and no, wait wait a second, is that is that my rib bone? Am I getting skinny already? And am I losing all my muscle already? And then it was like, ah, <laughs> oh, no, it's kind of hard. It's kind of moving around. And suddenly just kind of knew, okay, this isn't right. And I was fortunate to grow up around some events that created a lot of awareness around, around breast cancer. Um, and if you feel something that's not right, go get it checked. So even though in my mind I'm like, well, it can't be anything. I'm just coming off the shape of my life. It was just like, okay, I'm going to go get it checked. And it actually bugged me that it was Sunday night and I couldn't do anything about it until <laughs> the next day. Mm-hmm. So we're in a new spot in Canada, not knowing any better. I walk, marched into the hospital to the mammogram department and they kindly let me know I need to be referred by a doctor. <laughs> so I end up, I, we don't have oh, a doctor man. in town. So I go to a walk-in clinic, mm-hmm. wait for an hour, um, see the doctor there. And he's like, looking at me and going, well, you're young and healthy. You know, this is probably nothing, but let's go ahead and get the follow-up scans just to be safe. So I'm like, great, that'll be in a couple of days. No, that takes a couple of weeks to schedule. Brutal. So for a couple of weeks, I'm like, it's nothing, you know, I'm just trying to live my life normal as possible, thinking you just, you know, this is, there's no way this is something bad. Mm -hmm. Go in for the mammogram, go in for the ultrasound, whatever they see in the ultrasound, it's concerning enough to prompt a biopsy. I get the biopsy and then I head off to Sweden to go to my friend's wedding and I'm on the way to the wedding and I get the phone call that um, the biopsy is revealed it's aggressive stage two breast cancer. And in that moment, it just, 
It's like I was ready to hear it, but it's still just a complete shock. You just kind of go, no, this this can't be happening. Um, I'm not that kind of, you know, I'm not the person who's going to get cancer. I do everything right. I'm fit and healthy. I feel amazing. But I, there wasn't as, as frustrated as I was and at times kind of going, oh, this isn't fair. I just, yeah, I there was no denial and there was never of like, I'm not going to just, I'm, right away, I'm going to tackle this head on. It was immediately like, okay, well, what can I do about this? Um, that athlete frame of mind really sprang into action pretty quick. Um, and you're, I mean, you're a perpetually happy person. It's been really fun to get to know you this week. You're always smiling. Um, I found a picture of you riding your bike to get your infusions. Um, I think you were living in Alaska then. What, what was your team around you like? I mean, were they building you up or do you just sort of operate on perpetual optimism? <laughs> well, I definitely tend to be an optimistic, happy person. Um, I definitely have seen the power of the positive mindset, you know, through some of those setbacks in my athletic career. Um, and so going into this, the most daunting challenge I've ever faced, uh, I knew a positive mindset was going to be important. I knew this was going to be a situation there were, where there was going to be so much more I couldn't control. Like I couldn't outwork this. I couldn't outwill this. But I still felt like staying focused on the things I could control was what I was going to need to get through it day to day. But I also knew that this challenge was also, I wouldn't, even if I was the most positive, optimistic person in the world, I was going to need help. Mm -hmm. And that started most importantly, I think, with with my husband, Jeff, and my family of just catching me in those little moments. They're, they're not too many, but when I'm kind of away from the crowd, I, you know, I, I let those frustrations out. I let the what ifs, you know, put the questions and they've been so helpful at helping bring me back just in those moments, reminding me of that we've caught this early, the prognosis is good. You know, while we're not able to expand our family right now, we have Breck and he's amazing. Um, so the, it's been hard to learn how to accept help, mm -hmm. but the outpouring of help and support has been incredible. I, I knew I was well supported as an athlete, but to then share this news and within seconds have people from all over the world yeah. telling me I'm strong, reminding me I'm going to get through this, offering to help, um, that has just blown me away. And I'm, I still have a hard time describing in words what that has meant to me. And it certainly has lifted me up through, you know, some of the toughest moments. Incredible. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, you, you give back in a, in a, large way with your presence and going to events and, and speaking on behalf of uh, folks and organizations that have been, been been there through your trials and celebrations. For example, it's going to be okay socks. Uh, tell us about where that came from. Yeah. Well, trying part of this, trying to keep a positive mindset, um, going through something daunting, I had these rainbow colored running shoes. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to wear these to my doctor's appointments. And that way, as daunting as things are going, I can look down at my feet and kind of remind myself to focus on the like the positive. And so it was my husband, Jeff, that actually came up with the idea of, well, this is really working for you. What if we came up with something that we could then share with everybody else that could be that positive reminder? Um, so we came up with the idea to do some happy socks. And uh, initially it talked with L.L. Bean, um, who's been a great partner of mine for years. And they were super supportive, but knew that the kind of their timeline and capacity was going to be uh, a little bit too much, too much time for us. So they introduced us to Darn Tough out of Vermont. Vermont. 
And uh, and Darn Tough was just immediately responsive. Like once we told them the story, they were totally on board. Um, they were willing to kind of fit us in their lineup right away, mm. which we wanted to kind of get something going right away because we were approaching October. It was a great time to kind of get the awareness coming to the holidays. And um, they said we had to order 1,200 pairs. And we thought, oh, you know, that's that's a bit daunting. Uh-huh. Um, but we, we were so excited about the project. We just thought, you know what, we're just going to take the risk. We're going to go for it. We had some friends uh, in Maine that were willing to kind of help us with the distribution. Uh-huh. And so we just kind of launched into this, made a, made a section of the website to, to sell them. I think we put out one Instagram post. And within three weeks, those 1,200 pairs were gone before we even had a single pair in stock. That is like awesome. Like they were pre-orders. So yeah. then that caught us by surprise. And... Already we started to hear the coolest stories of people that were buying these for a friend or a family member that were going through something tough or tackling something challenging. Mm-hmm. That's what I love about it, that it, it can kind of help people on all spe- all parts of the spectrum. But just pulling on those socks could literally give someone the courage to get through a tough day of chemo or lucky socks before a race. Yeah. Um, so immediately just love the idea that, you know, rem- we all need that reminder sometimes that things are going to be okay. And, uh, so the socks have been a great way to do that. And um, L.L. Bean gave us a bunch of headbands, pink headbands. So we put the logo on there. Yeah. Um, we've come up with a few other products since, just getting to see the impact. And we're hoping to now grow it. That's incredible. I think... Um, oh, and I guess, sorry, one more key part of that was we wanted to give back with this project. And so we decided $2 from every item we sell would go to Active Against Cancer. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, what, you're going to be pitching on Shark Tank tomorrow night? Yeah, yeah, obviously I got some work to do yeah. to kind of get all my ducks in a row, but Nailed it. Um, <laughs> something I'm excited about. So I'm looking forward to finding out how we can grow this and make an even bigger impact. Sure. So you had you had heard the Kate Courtney interview where we were talking about um, waffle makers, which are something <laughs> of a, that's a creature comfort that you can take on the road in a similar vein that like putting on this, this special pair of socks, it's going to be okay socks, like whether you're going into over a Overcoming an obstacle or doing a challenge is a nice, it's a creature comfort in a way. Amid your career, what were your creature comforts that you took with you? Um, I, I am a coffee person, uh-huh. as many athletes are. Um, for a while, I actually traveled around with a full-size Nespresso machine oh, wow. on the road. Uh, one of my teammates fashioned a handle out of rope, and we literally <laughs> carried it on the plane with us, and we'd look for the little pods everywhere we went. Yeah. Um, so that traveled for a season, but was a bit cumbersome to travel with. So once we discovered the AeroPress uh-huh. was a, was uh, a great way to, a likewise. little more efficient way to make good coffee. Um, that's been a constant traveling companion. Would you bring beans from the States or, or source your European beans? Yes. I have to say I'm a bit of an American coffee yeah. person. So we would all, that was the game throughout the season because we'd leave in November and we wouldn't come back till March and it just wasn't practical to bring an entire year's supply of coffee <laughs> with us. So whenever we had a coach or a physical therapist coming, it was like, bring coffee, bring coffee, yeah. bring coffee. So that, that got me through. I hear similarities there. I totally get that. Um, looking back at your career as a whole, do you have a favorite moment? Is it your final race? Is it... Is it that 2013 World Champs? Um, Is it something else that I haven't even thought of? Well, I mean, really, it's the collection of moments um, through my entire career um, of the the tough training days, um, the silly things we did in the road. But if I had to pick a result-oriented moment, I think it was when we got our first podium in the World Cup in the four-person relay. And this was in Yalavari, Sweden in the fall of 2012. 
I had had another stress fracture in my foot kind of leading into the season. <laughs> and up until the race the day before, I wasn't sure of where I was at. But turns out that also was a setback that helped me find a gear I didn't know I had. I was in phenomenal shape, but we, the four of us teamed up. And as Jesse, Jesse was our anchor leg again, kind of coming in that clutch position. When she crossed the line for a won a photo finish for third place, you would have thought we had won the entire thing. Sure. We were so excited. And for me, just I skied the second leg of that race the whole time. My heart was just thumping. And to be able to just celebrate that breakthrough with the team, oh, it was so much fun. Nice. Just um, And to see the impact, the ripple it had out on um, our World Junior Girls uh, it, it was so fun. So that's definitely a memory that stands out. And the best part was there's a cartoonist that follows the World Cup, and he did the most awesome cartoon of no our way. team afterwards. We all had cowboy hats on, and we were shooting off guns oh, and, and various things. He he nailed everybody's character. Nice. So I've got a nice picture at home to remind me of that. Brilliant. Um, wrapping up shortly, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Talk Next Step program here. Um, where did you Where did you first hear about it? Uh, I heard about this program through the U.S. Olympic Committee Athlete Career and Education Program. ACE. ACE. They um, they send out. Uh, they've been sending out pretty regular emails, just kind of letting you know what services are available. And um, I definitely was at this point where I'm starting to figure out. Like for the last 20 years, my life has been so structured and so clear. I've known exactly what goals I was going for. Mm -hmm. And while I have a great a lot of experience coming out of that, now the future's been a lot more ambiguous. And I was had so many projects to get involved with right away mm -hmm. that it was really easy to just kind of jump in and start doing. But when I saw this program, I realized, wait a second, this will be a perfect opportunity to kind of stop mm -hmm. for two weeks, figure out what I know, what I don't know, what opportunities there are to do something about it, and then just really dive down to that time. And, um, and I was intrigued to kind of be mixed in with other athletes who were going through the same thing. I thought you know, I wouldn't have put to, the two and two together that military veterans are kind of in the same position as sure. athletes in a lot yeah. of ways. And yeah. I have to say now that I've been in the program, that has been such a cool experience to, to interact with so many different people. Um, and those two groups coming together has been a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, it just super cool that this is an opportunity uh, for us. I have been engaged every single moment. I think I'm going to probably go home and sleep for two days because yeah. it's just been nonstop, <laughs> fun, 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 go, go, go. Um, but I'm learning so much and, and also really just having to ask myself some of those key questions that I think will set the stage for um, the next several years. Sure. Any favorite courses so far? I mean, it's a, it's a, to paint the picture to our audience, how would you describe it? I, I'd call it a two week comprehensive, but very liberal arts approach to, to, to business in general. I mean, we're getting like a snippet every day of a variety of things. So what's your favorite course so far? Yeah, I mean, it's been taking a semester's worth of work or a year's worth of work in some cases and cramming it into a couple hours. <laughs> exactly. So it's been a lot of information to digest, but um, I, I really love the teamwork and leadership aspects. So I really enjoyed the presentation about super bosses, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. about how, we, how to not just be a leader, but then help develop leaders that develop leaders that kind of create this ripple effect. Mm -hmm. So that's been really interesting. Um, I think today's workshop where we, we really had to sit down and envision our future and then work back and put down some concrete goals of how we're going to get there. Um, I always have considered myself really good at goal setting, but to actually sit down and have to do it and then explain it to your classmates, um, has that's been really cool. And I've actually almost enjoyed more hearing what other people have and kind of helping ask the key questions for them. Yeah, yeah. So um, I just, but I literally haven't had a section that I didn't 
feel fully engaged on and enjoy. And even though it's been very high level information crammed, uh, I already feel like I'm getting some really concrete things to take out of it. So as we're, we're, I think, randomly placed throughout the classroom, which is a big survey style classroom, you are front and center. You could not be any closer to the front. Did you place yourself there or, or was that the random selection? I placed myself there yesterday Okay. because I was kind of, for one day I sat in a space where I kind of had to lean around the person yeah. in front of me to see the front. And so I saw an open spot and I love to be right in the middle of the action. So I just went and planted myself right there in the front. And you yeah. gotta bring an apple and be the teacher's pet. Give it to the, give it to the professor. Be like, I'm here. I'm yeah. present. <laughs> well, sweet. Um, Keegan Randall, that's it for me. Thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Really fun hanging out with you this week and chatting with you this past hour. Well, thanks so much for having me too. Um, I do feel a strong connection to the cycling world. I got a new bike as my retirement gift last year. Nice. And now I live in BC and uh -huh. the riding's been incredible. So I'm um, excited that I have more time to get on the bike and we'll have to go for a ride sometime. Absolutely. Full circle. Love it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Once again, I want to thank Keegan for taking the time during a very busy two weeks at Next Step to sit down and have this chat with me. Another huge thanks also goes out to John Summerford at Bears Records. John takes the audio files that I send him from these conversations all throughout the globe and makes them into the listenable format that you hear today. If you enjoy these conversations, if you enjoy John's work, if you enjoyed this conversation or any of them out there at King of the Ride, please take just those few seconds and offer up a quick review. Five stars are, of course, preferred. Those mean a lot. That is it for me, ladies and gentlemen. Until next time, please enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride.